Hello and welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm Khalid, one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy, and I'm here to open up this episode. This episode is a talk with Edwin Bryant, republished from Embodied Philosophy's Radical Practice Conference in 2018. If you have a copy of the Bhagavad Gita handy, you might want to grab it while you listen. <laughs> Edwin Bryant received his PhD in Indic Languages and Cultures from Columbia University and is presently the professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University. He has received numerous awards and fellowships, published eight books, and authored a number of articles on the earliest origins of the Vedic culture, yoga philosophy, and the Krishna tradition. As a personal practitioner of bhakti yoga for over 45 years, a number of them spent in India studying with traditional teachers, where he returns yearly, Edwin strives to combine academic scholarship and rigor with appreciation towards traditional knowledge systems. In this episode, Edwin talks about Patanjali's Chitta Vritti Narodaha type practice in the Gita, Ashtanga type practice in the Gita in comparison with verses in Patanjali, and Bhakti, the highest expression of yoga. We hope you enjoy. Jnana Timirandasya, Jnananjana Shalakaya, Chakshor Umilitam Yena, Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha. Akanda Mandalakaram, Yena Vyaptam Characharam, Tatpadam Darshitam Yena, Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha. Apavitra Pavitruva, Sarva vastha gato piva Yasmaret pundari kaksham Sa bhaya bhyantara shuchihi So, um, traditional teaching, uh, one always begins, typically begins anyway with an invocation when we invoke the presence of our teachers and, um, and we invoke the presence of Ishwara to guide our, um, and inspire, uh, Dhimai, to inspire our intelligence. So our um, project um, today is to um, look at the Ashtanga, although the Gita doesn't use the term Ashtanga, uh, but, to, but to look at the Gita's uh, articulation or expression of what it calls Dhyana Yoga, which is the sort of the equivalent of Patanjali and Yoga, the Chitta Vritti Nirodaha Yoga. Um, so actually, even Patanjali doesn't call it Ashtanga. He just says it has Ashtangas. It has eight limbs. Um, but the, anyway, the term in the older texts and texts like the Gita for that type of practice is called uh, Dhyana Yoga, um, which of course in Patanjali is the seventh limb. But in, in the older texts, Dhyana Yoga is the name for meditational yoga, the Chitta Vritti Niroda, meaning the stilling of the mind type of yoga. So our project is going to be to look at how the Gita defines yoga. First of all, um, the Gita is not, it's not going to reject that kind of yoga at all. It's going to honor it and respect it. But it's, it's not, it, uh, Krishna certainly is going to take the position that um, he doesn't favor that, at least for Arjuna, in Arjuna's case. And he's going to make the case that there's another type of yoga. Um, so we'll look at those so-called two types of yoga. Um, 
actually the Gita, people say that, you know, the Gita has these three yogas. The Gita itself never talks about having three yogas. Because there's bhakti and there's karma and there's jnana and so forth. It never sort of uh, articulates the view that there are these three yogas. Well, that does come in the commentaries um, many centuries, uh, uh, starting from many centuries ago. But the Gita itself does recognize, explicitly recognize, two kinds of yogas. So we'll look at the verses where that, that is the case, uh, where Krishna um, states that, and we'll look at the, the sort of different emphases of these two kinds of yogas, and then hopefully if we have time, we'll um, at least say something about bhakti, which of course in the Gita is, these, these yogas are not equal. Uh, bhakti is the, the culminating, the highest expression of yoga, and the Gita is very clear about this. So we'll look at the, that, those verses so that we can, we can look at the text itself. So if those of you listening or, or watching this podcast, is it a podcast? Um, yeah. This video, uh, if you have a Gita handy, uh, you might want to grab it. I recommend uh, Winthrop Sargent. Um, this, because it has the Sanskrit, it does not have a commentary. Now, not that there's anything wrong with commentaries. Com- commentaries, of course, are an essential part of the, the study of any text in India. But the issue with the commentaries on the Gita, the Gita is actually a Vedanta text. It's, it's one of the three texts that it's used by the Vedanta tradition, along with the Upanishads and the Vedanta Sutras themselves. So the Gita is like the third text. that's called the Prasthana Triya, the three texts. And the... I won't call it a problem, it's, but certainly the issue or the characteristic of Vedanta is that it becomes very sectarian and the commentaries differ radically amongst themselves. And we don't have time to get into that. I think many uh, people watching this might not be that so interested in that. Um, but I, I, I mention it um, because we don't want to get, since we don't want to get involved in that, then uh, this Winthrop Sargent um, doesn't have a commentary. It has the Sanskrit word for word. And that way, even if you're not planning to learn Sanskrit, you can really get close to the text. And then you see what the actual text is saying, and then read the commentaries and compare. And then you'll see that many translations take uh, enormous liberties uh, in the translation. That's just the nature of Vedanta. So, the Gita then, it's uh, probably worth noting, it's, it's not a text unto itself. It's actually been plucked out of the Mahabharata, a huge text, the, the biggest literary epic, um, in, in you know known to man you know that has that has been preserved hundred thousand verses uh, with four lines so it's enormous and the Gita is, is situated right in the middle and this huge epic dealing with the saga of you know the the Arj, the uh, Pandavas and the Kauravas it's a warrior epic uh, and so it, and, and it's meant for warriors uh, in fact the beginning of the Mahabharata Vyasa says this is meant for non Brahmins those who normally would not have access to Brahminical knowledge high knowledge, scholastic learning. And he mentions, you know, the warriors and the merchants and, and women as well. Um, so those who are normally excluded from Vedic orthodoxy and orthopraxy, the Mahabharata is written for them. So it's a warrior text and therefore the language is very martial. Uh, and, and those who have read the, the Gita might have remarked, remarked on that. And that's because it has been plucked out of a huge martial epic, uh, a, a huge war that took place um, in, uh, you know, according to tradition in the ancient past. So the first chapter of the Gita then is, was, you know, the, the battlefields, the, the lines on both sides are, are described uh, on the battlefield. Um, various warriors are named, of course, if you'd read the entire first half of the epic, because the Gita comes right in the middle, then you'd know who all those warriors were. 
uh, and their stories and all about their kingdoms. Of course, we are artificially just jumping into the Gita. So the first the first chapter is just a list of names for us, but actually, if you read the Mahabharata, they, they all have their dynastic histories and their stories and their and so forth. So the battle is about to start. It's considered to be a righteous war by the standards of the time, uh, the Dharma Shastras, according to the st standards of the, the conventions of the time, just like we have our Geneva Conventions, or we have their Dharma Shastras, which which expressed when when war be is a righteous thing to engage in. So all of that's been discussed uh, in, in the first 50,000 verses. War looms inevitable. Um, Krishna is Arjuna's charioteer for reasons that we don't need to get into. Um, battle is about to start. Um, and Arjuna asks Krishna to bring his chariot between the lines. He sees at the on the opposing side all, all of the family and friends and so forth. But two people in particular uh, are there. Of course, he, he's known all along they're there, but now he suddenly realizes the implication of this. And that is Bhishma, the grand, grand Pitamaha, the grandfather, technically granduncle, is on the other side. Um, and he's, of course, the grandfather of both groups of cousins. And Brona, the, uh, the guru. <clears throat> so if, if, to get a sense of this, we might... We might like to recall that the Pandavas were orphans. So Bhishma was, even though biologically was the grand uncle, was actually like the father figure, the presence, the paternal presence. So uh, he's there on the other side, not because of any animosity to the Pandavas, but just because of the quirks of warrior protocol. So warriors were on one side or the other, simply because of sort of Indo-European kind of um, warrior ethic. If somebody asked you nicely, to fight on their side, that's all you, had, you basically had to do. If you got there first then and asked the king, then the king would fight on your side. If the other side got there first and asked politely, then he'd be on the other side. It had nothing to do necessarily with partiality. So it's, this, this is a, a feature of not just the Indian tradition, but you see that in other Indo-European warrior traditions. Anyway, so the point is they're on the other side, not because of any um, partiality. And when Arjuna realizes that he's going to have to fight, he's other figure, his you know, grand uncle, grandfather Bhishma, and his guru. He has a conflict of Dharma. And this is what triggers the Bhagavad Gita. It's not an existential crisis. Okay, let's, we should be clear about that. Arjuna is not asking the big existential questions that perhaps the Upanishads are asking and other texts, like who am I and you know, why, you know, what happens after death and, and those kinds of questions. I mean, Krishna might of course does disclose all of that but that's not what Arjuna is asking so so the real sort of the teachings of the Gita if you want to think of the yoga teachings of the Gita begin 211 and that and they're preceded by Arjuna saying um, Dharma excuse me oh, I thought I was going to sneeze Dharma Samudha Chetaha my mind is confused about Dharma Dharma samudha cheta, samudha confusion. Dharma samudha cheta, my cheta, my, my cheta. It's confused about dharma. Shishaste shadhimam tvam prapana. And he says, That's it. I, I'm so confused. Um, just tell me what to do. I'm now your disciple. The relationship changes then. They're no longer equals or cousins. I'm equal in a social sense, although, of course, Arjuna has always revered Krishna. Um, but the, it changes at that moment. I think that's two seven or thereabouts, um, uh, two seven, and um, Arjuna becomes a disciple, 
and then um, and his confusion is a dharmic one. Okay, so that's the the point. Uh, that's in, that's important at this point. So then Krishna launches into what's sometimes called the Jnana Yoga portion of the Gita. Well, the Gita itself calls it Sankhya Yoga, as we will see. And he starts off, and I'm just going to. There's a, the the Gita is a very very busy text. There's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot of verses that are kind of dismisses dismissive of Vedic ritualism. That's kind of like a sub-agenda of the Gita, to be not, not rejecting Vedic ritualism, but dismissive of, of how it's, the attitude with which it's performed. And Gita, and, and, and Krishna's really sort of referring to a lot of things that are going on in the intellectual landscape of the day, okay, Sankhya and the Guna theory and Jnana Yoga and Vedanta, there's verses that are verbatim from the Upanishads, a couple of verses. Um, Vedic ritualism, yoga practice. So, so basically, it's sort of referring to all of this and subsuming it all under bhakti. That's the ultimate uh, agenda of the text. Now, our, our discussion today is not going to be so much on bhakti, but I do want to make throw that out right at the beginning. That really, it's a, it's 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 a, its primary agenda is to say that bhakti is the, is the highest path. Bhakti yoga is the highest type of yoga, and there are a number of verses where this is, is clearly expressed in the twelfth chapter, beginning. Arjuna clearly asks Krishna, which is the highest yoga. End of chapter six, again, highest yoga is bhakti. So, um, so let's establish that, even as that's not going to be our focus in this particular talk. So, so the the, the so-called Jnana yoga portion of the Gita, then um, the, the verses are essentially. A lot of the adjectives, a lot of the phraseology is coming from the Upanishads. The Upanishads are the Jnana texts, um, which are also busy texts, but one of their main, one of the main sort of features of the Upanishads is the instruction on Brahman and Atman. It's not the only one. There's a lot going on in there. Um, but anyway, from the point of view of the Vedanta tradition, the main uh, agenda of the Upanishads is to teach Atman and Brahman, even though academic scholars will point out, well, actually there's a lot of other stuff going on, and, and that's fair enough. But from the point of view of the Vedanta tradition, okay, which Vedanta Sutra starts with Bhadarayana, um, and, I, and I, I, I'm, the date for Bhadarayana is eluding me, but I, I, I believe it's Vedanta Sutras, is, I can't remember if it's third it's the 3rd century BC or AD? We're going to have to edit this bit. <laughs> so, from the point of view of the Vedanta tradition, um, the, the, uh, the main, the main uh, you know, right, Atato Brahma Jignasu, the main um, purpose of the Upanishads is to teach about Brahman. Um, so, the Gita wants to connect to that. Because why the reason the Gita wants to connect to that is because it's actually going to it, it, it itself is is going to say it's introducing a new type of yoga. Although it says it actually was old but got lost, but to all intents and purposes, at the time, it's a new type. It was a, it, 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 even if it was a reintroduction, it was new um, for this from the sensitivities of the day. So Krishna wants to say, oh, it, it's the same Upanishadic teaching, but I'm just going to show you how to do that in the context of action in the world. So therefore, there are the first uh, chapter two, a lot of the phraseologies. So, for example, verse eighteen. Um, well, let's start. Uh, yeah, verse eighteen. These bodies inhabited by the eternal, the indestructible, the immeasurable, embodied self, are said to come to an end. 
So that kind of language is fairly typical of the Upanishads, that there is an Atman that is indestructible, that is eternal, and, um, and immeasurable, it's infinite. Notice, notice these are all negatives. Naiti, Naiti, the Upanishads say Naiti, 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 because, um, because the Atman is beyond the intellect, and the intellect can only conceive of things for which it has samskaras, and those sams samskara is the product of um, an imprint that comes from Prakriti. So in other words, we can only think of things for which we are thought is an activation of a samskara, and a samskara is an imprint of something that's been received from property, even if it's a conceptual thing. It's still a prakritic thing that's bound by space and time and so forth. Um, as, as Kant, uh, of course, um, informed um, Western philosophy. So therefore, when we talk about the Atman, how we, it, it, we're projecting prakritic things, any, any kind of attempt to describe the Atman is going to be projecting prakritic things which are in, inapplicable or inappropriate. They're metaphysically, it's a metaphysical issue, uh, and not just a semantic one, that, that, it, that it's, it, it, the, the mind can only sort of um, discuss and think about and qualify and describe prakritic things. And so therefore a lot of the descriptors in the beginning of the Gita, when I say the beginning, the, the philosophical portion, which starts at 2.11, are going to be negatives, negating that, that it's not measurable, Everything in property is measurable, even the Mahatattva is measurable, even the universe itself is measurable. There are measurements given in the Puranas, actual measurements. But the Atman is immeasurable, it's indestructible, it's eternal, it has no terminuses, it has no, uh, it's not bound by time. So we'll see a lot of this, and the Upanishads just say, na, uh, put it very nicely, neti, neti, which means na iti, na iti, not this, not this, not this, not this. So we get a lot of neti, neti versus in the beginning of the Jnana Yoga portion of the Gita, uh, imperishable, and so forth. Okay, so this is Krishna has to any kind of yoga is predicated on the notion of an Atman, that there is something beyond the body mind, and that's and therefore that Krishna the Gita establishes that first. So Jnana Yoga, in a sense, is the basis of any type of yoga whether it's bhakti yoga, whether it's karma yoga, whether it's jnana yoga, right? If you're going to Chittavriti Nirodaha, for example, well, the presupposition, one wouldn't be doing a Chittavriti Nirodaha unless there was a drashtahu, svarupe vastanam, the possibility of a drashtasiya, a drashtra, a drashtahu in the genitive, a drashtu svarupe vastanam, the possibility of a seer abiding in its own nature. So, uh, so, so therefore, even, even though Patanjali doesn't give us jnana, he's presupposing that, that there is the mind beh behind, which, behind which there is the seer that can abide in its own nature. So therefore, jnana yoga is the basis of all the uh, yoga t traditions. And that jnana yoga is expressed in the, in the Upanishads, and other texts, but especially in the Upanishads, and that's the Vedanta. So, so Krishna wants to link the Gita with those Upanishads because he wants to inform Arjuna and through Arjuna, the reader, that even though this is going to sound new, he's going to talk about acting in the world, it's actually, it's, a, it's Upanishadic teachings, but it's going to be tailored, those teachings, which are normally forest teachings, normally, and that's why Arjuna is going to keep getting confused at least twice. He's going to say, I'm confused, you're telling me to act, but shouldn't I be, you know, not, not acting, go into the forest. Because typically 
in that at that time when we see when we read the Upanishads, when we read the older Puranic texts, and we see the you know Moksha Dharma of the Mahabharata, the texts, the older texts, when the term yoga is is typically used in the yogi, it's often in the forest, which is logical, right? If you're going, if you're seeking the Atman, then you're not seeking the world anymore, and and you want to try to avoid all distractions. If you're going to Chittavriti Narodha, then you want to put yourself in an environment that's most conducive to that. Uh, and so therefore, the Upanishads are typically situated in the forest, even the Brihad Aranyaka, the Aranyaka Upanishad, the Aranyaka is a forest. So, um, so, so therefore the practice of yoga and of yogis, you see them in the Mahabharata, in the background, when Ram is in the forest, you see them in the, when the Pandavas are in the forest. So the yogis tend to be living in the forest, you certainly sit in the, in the Puranas and, in, and so forth. So that tended to be the associations at the time of this thing called yoga. So therefore, uh, uh, Krishna wants to start off by um, establishing that this is the same Upanishadic teaching. It's not some new you know, point of view. It's not some new uh, non-Vedic um, um, you know, set of teachings. So therefore, we have the, all of these verses, and you know, the verse 22, the uh, body is compared to a set of clothes, and you know people just change their clothes. What's the big deal? Put on new clothes. So death is like that. So we have all of these sort of jnana yoga yoga verses, very basic, one o one, very sort of basic. You can say uh, Vedanta teachings. Nothing particularly uh, startling or or unique about them. The Gita is purposely um, connecting to uh, established uh, an established sort of Vedantic point of view. Um, and so this goes on, chapter 25, um, 20, uh, sorry, verse 25, uh, 26, and so forth. Um, you know, death is certain, birth is certain. We get verse 29, that one can perceive this Atman, and let's keep that in mind, that the, the purpose is perception of the Atman. I mean, after all, what does Patanjali call the Atman? He, sometimes he uses the term Atman, and sometimes Purusha, but often he uses the term Trashtra, the seer. Svarupe Vastanam, the seer can see itself, can abide in its own nature. So verse 29 tells us that it's possible to see the Atman, um, and, and that ultimately that's the goal. So, um, so we get to verse about 239, and then, we, and then the Gita, Krishna, um, sort of indicates that it's going to be a, trans a transitional verse, and let's read it. So he says, this insight is wisdom, right? Um, uh, 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 <clears throat> and it's declared in the theory of Sankhya. He calls that Sankhya. Um, we should keep in mind now that this, you know, this is before the emergence of the so-called, you know, six schools of Indian philosophy. Actually, there were those schools are, are enumerated differently in, in the older sources. There's, you know, twelve or thirteen. So the, I don't know when the idea of six becomes reified. Although the number six seems to have some kind of history. But anyway. It's something of an artificiality because there's many more than six schools. Uh, we might know Tantra and, uh, and so forth, and, and the Shakta traditions are theologically sophisticated and they don't make it into the, the hallowed list of six. But anyway, this is before that. So Sankhya at this point doesn't refer to a specific school, one of the schools. Uh, but it, it is the term the Gita uses for Jnana Yoga. So Vedanta and, and Sankhya seems to be sort of, um, you, you know, the terms that are seem to be a little interchangeable. So he says this insight, which he's just spoken about, that the soul is eternal and imperishable and indestructible and so forth, is wisdom. 
as declared in the theory of Sankhya. Now hear it as applied to yoga. But we must bear in mind it's going to define yoga very differently. Let's just hold on that. We'll see how it defines yoga. So it's making a contrast in verse 239 between the sort of Vedanta-type teachings, which it calls Sankhya, that the soul is eternal and that the, that the real person is not the body, that the body is external to the Atman, right? Just typical, basic, 101 uh, Vedanta teachings. It's making a distinction between that, which nowadays we call the Jnana Yoga, we might call Jnana Yoga, but the text calls Sankhya. It's making a distinction between that and what it calls Yoga. Okay, let's see what this Yoga is. Um, so, but before he, he launches into that, because it's going to be dealing with action, he wants to make it distinct from Vedic act, uh, kind of religiosity. Um, and, and therefore we have verses uh, 41, 42, 43, where there's some pretty strong language, um, sort of dismissive of the mentality of Vedic ritualism, the mentality of throwing things into the fire to get stuff, uh, because uh, it, it is based on desire, and it's based on ignorance of the Atman, and it's based on a, a, an understanding of the self, that I'm the body-mind, and therefore I'm going to get good things for my body-mind, and let me do these Vedic rituals, so I'll get rain, and the, and the celestials will, the gods, the devas, will bestow um, boons upon me in this life and next life, I'll get to go to the celestial realms. So it's the Gita is, is very, uh, fairly um, strongly opposing that mindset, not necessarily the performance of the ritual, but the mindset which Patanjali would say, Avidya, you know, it comes from a place of ignorance of the Atman. Asmita, the next step, which is ignorance of the Atman. The first step, second step is, if I'm ignorant of the Atman, then what do I think I am? Well, I think I'm this Drigdarshana Shakta or Ekatmata. I think I'm this body-mind, and the minute I think I'm this body-mind, then how do I find meaning in the world? I try to find happiness through my body-mind, and that's Ragadvesha. So the, um, the Gita shares that view. Um, and therefore, Vedic rituals which are aimed at raga, the satisfaction of desire, um, are, not, are not the goal of life. And, and the Gita repeatedly re revisits that uh, throughout the text, so it might be useful to keep that in mind. When, uh, when you're reading the text, you'll find these little kind of dismissive co comments. Not rejection, but dismissive comments of the Vedas. Why? Because it's the mainstream religiosity at the time. That's what's going on. That was the standard form of religious practice at the time. And the yoga is going on at the margins of this. I, I, I always like to think of it, compare it, you know, with St. Francis and, you know, his sort of, and he was working on the margins of the sort of, of this larger Catholic church, which at the time had become very materialistic, perhaps, and, um, and lost sight of its, of its sort of simple origins. So yoga is going on on the margins in the forests and uh, all that, but the mainstream religion of the day was this kind of Vedic ritualism, which is very lusty and material, and nothing particularly spiritual about it. It's about the good things of life in this world and and going to a better realm, not liberation, but some kind of a better realm, a celestial realm, Svarga, you know, in the next life. So, so, so therefore, Krishna wants to make a distinction between the kind of action that he's going to teach, which is yoga, to kind of this materialistic religiosity. And if we want to find a, a parallel in our modern day and age, we might think of going to a church or a synagogue or, a, you know, or any place of worship and going and asking for material things rather than asking for you know, knowledge of the, of the true self or you know, pure love 
of God or the sort of spiritual things, uh, ultimate things. Uh, but to go to a, any place of worship with a mentality of, well, you know, cure my, cure my sickness or send some financial help and praying to some kind of higher power, whether it's God or Virgin Mary or the Bodhisattva or whatever it might be, um, and praying for some material boon. That's what the Gita is criticizing. And that's exactly what was the mindset of the Vedic ritualists. Maybe the rituals are different, right? We might light candles in front of statues and they pour ghee into fire, but the mentality is the same, which is give me some, give me you know, good things in this life, bless me with the good things in this life, and a better place in the next life. And that's not the goal of yoga. The goal of yoga is realization of the self, and of course, bhakti is then um, the relationship of that self with the higher self, which is Ishvara, and in the Gita, that's Krishna. So, um, if you run into these verses that are a little dismissive of the Vedic, of, of, Ved, of, 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 Ved, of Vedicism, of Vedic ritualism, then, then that's one way of thinking about it. So now, uh, Krishna now is ready to define uh, the yoga that he's going to teach, which is different, right, from the Sankhya, Jnana, Vedanta type, which we're familiar with from the Upanishads, or Arjuna would have been familiar with, the reader's familiar with at that time. And here it is, verse 48 is where we get the um, the definition of yoga. Fixed in yoga, fixed in buddhi yoga, which means the knowledge of the Atman, right? That, that, that's why it's the basis. Karma yoga is predicated, predicated on, on um, jnana yoga. To act in the world, one has to know who, who the actor is or who the actor is not, actually. Um, and so then fixed in that, so keeping that jnana, right? Normally you go to the forest, fixed in jnana, and then what do you do? You do Patanjali and Chittavriti Narodaha Yoga to realize. So you bring the knowledge, okay, I'm the Atman, go to the forest, so if that's the case that I'm the Atman, if that's the case that I'm not the body-mind, so let me close down the body-mind so I can realize Atman, that's Patanjali. You do Pratyahara, involute consciousness, and ultimately, you know, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, all the stages of samadhi and defined in, what, in, in the second verse is chitta naroda. What is that? It's closing up the world. So, um, so that's one thing you can do with jnana, right? And that would be the typical thing, an expected thing to do with jnana if somebody really wanted to know the Atman, they went to the forest. But Krishna is going to teach another thing that you can do with this jnana. And that is act in the world with this jnana. So therefore he starts off verse 48. Fixed in yoga, yoga stha, kuru karmani, do your actions. Sangam chaktva dhananjaya, but give up attachment to the fruits. Siddhya siddhyo samobhutva samatvam yoga muchate. Yoga is equanimity to success or failure. If you're really not attached to the fruits, what does that mean? It's all very well saying, well, not a, don't be attached to the fruits. Well, if one really isn't attached to the fruits, then there's not going to be this notion of success or failure. One's effort's going to be doing one's duty to the best of one's ability, right? You know, sort of channeling all one's skills and uh, into the performance of one's dharma. But, but if one is not attached to the fruits, as long as one is satisfied, one's done one's duty, no attachment to so-called success or failure. And if that's the case, that one isn't attached, then the mind isn't going to be happy, sad, happy, sad. Because typically, we work for a goal. If we get that goal, we're happy. And if we don't get that goal, we're sad. And therefore, our, the result of being attached to the fruit 
is the mind is constantly happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. Oh, this worked out well, yay. Okay, that didn't work out, boo. And this is embodied life uh, for, most, for most creatures. I'm sure the same applies to you know, animal kingdom and so forth. So if one is genuinely not attached to the fruits of action, the, the, the proof of that is samatvam yoga mutchate, samatva, equanimity, peacefulness, no sense of success or failure. The only concern at this point is, did I do my duty? I did my duty the best of my ability. The rest is karma. The rest is Ishwara's kripa, the grace of God. But the, 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 but there is no attachment. Okay, that then is the difference between karma and karma yoga. Normal karma means to do one's duty, but to be attached to the fruits. And that's what plants the seed of karma. With the seed which Patanjali is going to say is jati ayubhogaha. The seed comes back in terms of the type of birth that we take, the life span we remain in those births, and the bhoga, quality of life. So 48, then we get this new definition of yoga, samatvam yoga mutchate, and it's repeated it's, it, with some variation in 50, where Krishna says, he whose wisdom is established casts off here in the world both good and evil actions, meaning you, there's no more karma. If one is doing, if one is detached from the fruits, there are no seeds of karma planted. If there are no seeds, then there's no fruits. So in this world, not in some next world. So the way to stop planting seeds, of course, if you're a yogi, you want to stop. And if you realized that sarvam dukkam, right, this is the big maxim of, of yoga, 215 in Patanjali, first noble truth of Buddhism, sarvam dukkam, that, you know, somehow or other, we're always frustrated in our attempt to find happiness when we think we're body-minds, when we're in a state of ignorance. Always this happiness eludes us. We're, we're always somehow frustrated. That's the best way of thinking. of one way of thinking of Sarvam Dukkham. We're constantly frustrated. So, um, um, <clears throat> so therefore, one of the fears is, um, I don't want to keep perpetuating this sort of state of frustration. I don't want to keep making karma. And action is associated with karma. That's why the yogis go to the forest. They want to be minimalist. They want to stop. They, they want to give up acting. That's why Patanjali, even Patanjali talks about the fourth kind of pranayama. What is that fourth kind? Right? There's the inhalation, exhalation, and retention. What else can you do with the breath? Well, there were some radical yogis wanted to even stop breathing. That's how intensely they wanted to avoid action. Because even breathing is an action. It's disturbing, you know, microbes. It's just, it's not anything drastic, but it's still action, which is planting seeds, which means that there are consequences, which means one has to come back. So there were yogis that even stopped you know, you see pictures, you see images or descriptions of yogis with, you know, nails growing around them, don't even cut their nails. Stop, you know, underwater, there's a story in the Bhagavatam of Sobhari, Muni, went underwater, right, so afraid of action. Let me just know, even in the forest, didn't even want to go to the forest, right, because maybe a forest, right, there's monkeys, there's distractions, right, there's a danger. He goes underwater and tries to meditate. <laughs> and of course he opens his eyes and, and he happens to see two little fishes swimming by and, and they're mating and that just <laughs> all of his suppressed samskaras uh, immediately are triggered by that and then he goes off and gets married and has a hundred hundred kids <laughs> so <laughs> but the point is that um, that's how drastically the yogis were, were, were fearful of action so Krishna says don't worry if you do I'm going to teach you how to act 
and in a way that you cast off in this world. Verse 50, um, and elsewhere he says, it will save you from the great fear. It's the fear of, uh, of, of, of this planting seeds, of, of perpetuating the cycle. So anyway, to 50 then he says, you cast off in this world both good and evil actions, and therefore do this yoga, right? And what is this yoga, right? Verse 48, he said it was samatvam, equanimity in action. Here he says, karma sukoshalam, it's skill in action, right? Not chitta vritinaroda, it's giving a different de definition. It's skill in action. What is that skill? Is acting free of desire, which means free of attachment to the results, which means that whatever results come, samatvam, one's equanimous, if one is not, happy or sad because there's no attachment there it's neutral that's the skill and if one can act in the world like that then um, there is no karma and therefore he says um, and therefore he says uh, one can be li liberated so verse 51 so those who are established in wisdom the wise ones who have abandoned the fruit born of action abandoned the fruit meaning attachment to the fruit the fruit's going to come or not it's not so much that the fruit's going to, if you act in the world, there's going to be consequences, right? Action, um, action is a cause and it's going to generate effects. So effects will come, fruits will come. So the issue isn't that the fruits won't come, but not to be attached. So those who do, who, verse 51, those who have abandoned the fruit born of action are freed from the bondage of rebirth. Because they're not the bondage, meaning the seed, if there's a seed, it's bound. Bondage means a seed, right? You plant a seed, it's bound to, to its fruit. So that's the bondage, that, that, that seeds are going to produce consequences and then when one dies, there's so many unfructified seeds, seeds that have not borne their fruit. So that's why one, that's reincarnation is nothing other than that. So they go to the place that is free from pain. Okay, and later on in the text, it's going to define yoga. Third definition of yoga is that which takes you to the place free from pain, free from suffering, the dukkham, the dukkham, which... Tanjali and the Gita and the Buddha say sarvam is actually everywhere. Everything is dukkham if we're in a state of avidya. Okay, so that's then the Gita's uh, definition of yoga. But I, um, but what I want to do primarily in this, whatever's left of this, uh, of this um, discussion of this reading, is look at the forest yoga. Okay, but I wanted to make it very clear that Krishna is not prioritizing that. He's not rejecting it at all. He, he's not dismissive of it either. He is dismissive of Vedic ritualism. He is dismissive and uses quite strong language. He's not dismissive, dismissive of Chitta Vritti Nirodha. For those of you who don't know that term, I've been using it a lot. That's Patanjali defines yoga in the Yoga Sutras as Chitta Vritti Nirodha, the stilling of all um, fluctuations of, of the Chitta, of the mind. The stilling of all thought. That's how yoga is defined in Patanjali. So, um, so Krishna then, let's just jump now to, um, we'll jump backwards and forwards a bit because I want to make sure I get everything in, into this and there is a time limit here. So I want to get the verses that I especially wanted to, sh to share today and make sure that we, um, we cover those and then we might come back and jump around and sort of revisit things. But in the fourth chapter, this is the chapter where Krishna reveals who he is. Um, he's Bhagavan, he's God, he is the, he's the Ishvara. Um, Bhutanam Ishvaro Pisan, I am that Ishvara. The Ishvara elsewhere in the text, the Ishvara that the Vedanta speaks about, that, uh, well, he doesn't say Patanjali, but one might say that Patanjali mentions 
Krishna is claiming to be that 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 Ishvara that the sacred, the ancient texts talk about. Um, he is the composer of the Veda, Vedantakrit, Vedavid, the knower of the Vedas, and he is the, the ultimate cause, the Parabrahman, even even beyond Brahman, Parabrahman, the Supreme Brahman. So the Gita is clearly a monotheistic text that's promoting Krishna as the ultimate and absolute truth. Um, so we should be clear about that. Um, or the text is very clear about that, so whether we are or not. Um, so... so um, so, the, so in that beginning of the, of the fourth chapter, where Krishna sort of reveals, be, you know, begins his revelation of who he is, um, he says that. Um, uh, well, let's have a quick look. He says in chapter four, three. He's talking about the the karma yoga that he's just been teaching. And he starts off the chapter by saying, it was handed down in the ancient days amongst the kings. And he mentions the Rajarishis. Because, so the, this is a yoga for kings. Kings have to be active in the world. They have to be exemplars of Dharma and they have to make sure everybody else is following their Dharma. That's, that's the Dharma of the king. The Dharma of royalty is, in the ideal world, of course, and the Dharma Shastras is to, is to ensure everyone else is following Dharma. So he says, this is a yoga... Uh, that was imparted it was sort of handed down amongst the Raja Rishis Raja Shayo Viduhu so um, and then he says it was lost um, the yoga became nashta it became uh, lost and then he says in verse 3 and I'm now re-establishing. The lost yoga, of course, is the karma yoga. It had become lost. So the Gita is actually acknowledging that it's not saying that it's introducing a new yoga, but to all intents and purposes it is. It's sort of acknowledging that. Of course, it says it, it, it's not new-new because it had originally been there, but that was aeons ago. So at the time of Arjuna's time, it was new even if it did have some ancient pedigree. So he, the Gita is acknowledging this is a new, you don't because you don't find karma yoga in the Upanishads. You don't really find, you know, you maybe find a few lines in the Moksha Dharma that sort of point at a kind of karma yoga type possibility, but you don't get a very elaborate exposition of karma yoga until the Gita. It's the first time that you get this action in the world yoga, and you certainly don't find it in Patanjali, although some there have been some attempts made to sort of try to construe Patanjali as, as being... Um, promoting action in the world, and I think that's going a bit too far. I mean, it, you know, Patanjali is not incompatible with action in the world. And by the way, if I could just say this, and I, uh, you know, I've, I've often say this, um, the way I think about it is Patanjali is what we do um, at six o'clock in the morning in our personal meditative practice. That's for me. That's when the instructions and the and the the ethos of Patanjali, of that type of practice, uh, is relevant. Um, that's the time in the morning before the world wakes up for Chittavriti Naroda practice. So I think of Patanjali is what I do at six in the morning, and the Gita is what I do from nine to five. It's maybe a, an, a, a sort of, you know, uh, a, a, a cute way of thinking of it. So the Gita really is about what we do in terms of our uh, our lives in the world, our families, our, our, our professions, and so forth. So chapter four, he says, it got lost, and he's re-establishing it. He says that a couple of times. Um, 
And so, uh, so, so, so therefore, let's now, um, so hopefully that's all clear. Um, and that karma yoga later on in the text is going to sort of evolve into bhakti yoga, which is, which is action not just for the dharma, not just for the sake of dharma, but as an offering to God. And I would like to just revisit that at the end of this discussion, just to make sure that that sort of ultimate message is clear. So um, at this point, earlier on in the text, there hasn't been a lot of stress on bhakti because the, the groundwork is being laid. And the groundwork is that there is a soul, it's not the body, that's the jnana yoga or the gita called sankhya yoga. One can be a yogi in the world and the way to do that is to act, do one's duty and not be attached to the fruits. And the only way to do that is to understand I'm not the body-mind. The fruits are going to... It's only the body-mind that's receiving the fruits and that body-mind is never going to be satisfied by any fruit. Krishna's going to say it's like a fire. Desire is like a fire. The more you pour in, uh, the more it just wants... It burns. It doesn't get satisfied. Um, it might seem logical, right, that if there's a fire and you throw things on it, you, it seems logical that it will put the fire out, but it doesn't. It, the fire just consumes it and burns, burns even more logic, um, burns even more strongly. So, um, so, the, so, the, he, so this point in the text, he's not really um, ready to give a full exposition on bhakti because he's placing the um, groundwork, getting the, the, the bricks, the sort of he's, the, he's laying the, the, the cornerstones of. Um, of ingredients that are then going to be fed or culminate or take their highest expression in bhakti. Okay, so now what I want to do is, even though this isn't not the main um, agenda of the text, is I actually do want to look at the Patanjalian portion of the text, what I'm calling the Patanjalian type practice of the text. Um, just so that those of you I know that in the yoga world, the yoga, the yoga sutras now in the West has become canonical. That's a very modern thing. Um, it was practically an extinct uh, tradition when the British got to India. They couldn't find any any living, uh, you know, they had been yogis in the forest, but they couldn't find a, a, a living yoga sutra uh, teaching tradition. So this now, the fact that the yoga sutra has been basically, I mean, it was recognized in principle as one of the, you know, six, the, te the six great texts of the six schools, but it wasn't known as teaching it. They were teaching Vedanta, they were teaching Nyaya. Um, Sankhya also become pretty much extinct. So uh, that's been plucked out now because of, you know, Krishnamacharya and Shivananda and the great, the great sort of um, 20, early 20th century figures and their disciples. So now in the West we have this idea, we have this sort of sense that the, that the Yoga Sutras is somehow our canonical text. Um, and which is fine. I mean, I love the text and it's a great text, but I, I just want to say that is a modern phenomenon and, and has a lot to do with, you know, Western transplantation. Um, even the Gita, well, it was much more central to Hinduism, certainly central to Vedanta, but it wasn't a, 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 te a text for the... I don't know how... You, you know, in some ways it, it was there, but it too kind of... It, let's put it this way. Status is, was enhanced with, you know, in the, in the in the ferment of Hindu nationalism and and so forth. That's a story for another day. We now have these two texts, um, and somehow in the West, these have become our canonical texts: the Yoga Sutras and the and the Bhagavad Gita, and and great. That's a wonderful thing. Um, that's the nature of religion. It's always churning. It's always evolving. It's always cross fertilizing. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm not. I'm not in any way critiquing that. Uh, but what I am, what I am, where I am going with this 
uh, with the rest of the presentation is to is to into the Patanjalian uh, portion of the Gita because since the Yoga Sutras has been exported, many people are reading it. Um, I want to sort of draw attention to how the Gita expresses that same type of practice, even though, and again I'm repeating myself, pedagogy is repetition. Even though that's not the main main aim of the text, is not um, is not a, a dhyana practice, although it honors it and it very much recognizes it as bona fide. Okay, two types of yoga. Gita is interested in action in, in the yoga, uh, action in the world yoga. The Patanjalian yoga, the forest yoga, is the, the other one. Um, and let's go there now. So we'll be, go to the beginning of page five of uh, chapter five, and. Um, uh, the second time Arjuna is confused, he's confused because on the one hand he's getting all this jnana, this knowledge of the Atman, Sankhya knowledge, and on the other hand, Krishna is telling him to act, right? It seems contradictory, right? If I'm really Atman, if it's true I'm not the body-mind, if it's true I should be transcending my, my, my desires, shouldn't I go to the forest like all the other yogis? But why are you telling me to fight then? It's an awful war. He, uh, he asked that question the first verse of chapter 5, and the first verse of chapter 3, even after all of this lengthy uh, discourse that Krishna's given him, he's still confused. Why is he confused? Because the notion of yoga as being forest was so entrenched at the time. Now there was all those samskaras in his head up to that point. All those samskaras were, were, were sort of saying, yoga is forest, what's he talking about acting? Yoga is a forest practice. So even though Krishna's given him, explained everything to him, and repeated it and re-articulated it and, and, and said the same thing in different ways. It, it, the samskaras that he, he's carrying in his mind up to that point are so overwhelmingly um, considering yoga to be a forest practice that he's still confused. So you praise renunciation of action and again you praise yoga, Krishna. Yoga meaning skill in action, yoga. Which, is, uh, which one is the better of the two? Tell this to me definitely. That's the first verse of chapter 5. And if you go back to chapter 3, let's see what he says there. Almost a, a very similar type of um, statement. If it is your conviction that knowledge is better than action, O Krishna, then why do you urge me to engage in this, engage in this terrible action? So he's asked the same question twice. Okay, and obviously this is rhetorically, uh, the text is sort of, it is, it, it, you know, implicitly recognizing the, the novelty of the Karma Yoga teacher, both by having Arjuna phrase his confusion twice and by Krishna himself saying the, the, this new type of yoga is not really new, it's old, but it had become lost. So these are sort of, uh, uh, you know, rhetorical devices that the text is, is using to, uh, uh, to uh, affirm that, you know, typically yoga is forest, but this is a new set of teachings, but it's legitimate, it's authorized, it's bona fide. Okay. So then Krishna says in verse number two, um, both renunciation and the yoga of action lead to incomparable bliss. They both take you to that end goal, right? Of the two, however, it's quite clear, the yoga of action is superior to the renunciation of action. So those of you that are studying Patanjali and thinking, oh my God, this sounds so lofty, and but I can never do it. I can never chit the routine road her. I am, you know, I have too many responsibilities in the world. Then you might be reassured to read this verse, where Krishna says they both lead to the same goal, but the yoga in action is actually better. So that's the karma yoga, or he sometimes calls it buddhi yoga. Actually, quite often calls it buddhi yoga, but let's let's not explore that um, because we're we're going to run out of time. 
So, so then he goes on, verse 4 of chapter 5, Sankhya and Yoga are different. The childish declare. It's, it's childish to think that they're different. Sankhya meaning the Jnana Yoga, the Atma Vedanta Yoga, and the and Action Yoga. The childish think they're different. Not the wise, those who know. Even with one of them practiced correctly, one finds the fruit of both. So they're both legitimate. So the Gita is by no means rejecting the forest yoga, even as it's prioritizing action yoga. And the wise know that. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, we're in chapter 5 now. Verse 5. That the place that is attained by the followers of Sankhya is also attained by the followers of yoga. I'm not going to keep repeating this now, okay? Yoga, when the, when the Gita says yoga, it means action yoga. Sankhya, it means jnana, okay? I've said it a few times, so hopefully I don't want to be too repetitive. So, the place that is attained by the followers of Sankhya is also attained by the followers of yoga. Sankhya and yoga are one. He who perceives this, truly perceives. Because they both are going to give realization of the Atman. Mm. I was hoping to be able to read actually chapter 5 with you, but um, we are, actually have a time limit. So, I'm going to jump into chapter 6 and go straight to this Jnana Yoga um, component of the Gita, where it articulates a practice that is, the, is very close. It's clearly drawing from the same set of practices. Patanjali is systematizing, okay? I always think of Patanjali as a systematizer, right? Atta Yoga Anu Shasanam. Anu means to continue the teachings of yoga. So this type of yoga um, is there in the Shvetashvatara, in the uh, Kartopanishad, in the Moksha Dharma, and the Puranas. I mean, the, when the term yoga is used, it typically it has something to do with yamas and niyamas. Typically, uh, it has something to do with breath control and meditation. So there is some commonality um, in the, the way the word yoga is used. It's soteriological, it's plugged into a goal of moksha. And the, the goal of moksha, in, in, in turn, is plugged into the notion that there's suffering. There's some the sarvam dukkham, right? Where, where if, if, if one didn't have a sense of, of sarvam dukkham, why would one seek moksha? Why, why would one seek... The Vedic ritualists were not seeking moksha. They were seeking they, sukham. They were seeking sukham, happiness in this world, and sukham in the celestial realm in the next. They had not realized sarvam dukkham, the Vedic ritualists. They hadn't, to them, um, they, they, they didn't accept that. Uh, or at least they, they hadn't been exposed to that, uh, you know, that idea that the moksha traditions are introducing, that actually it's dukkham. It's always, you know, there's always frustration in any attempt to find happiness from a place of avidya, you know, body thinking and body mind. So when the term yoga is used, then it refers to the kind of meditational practice. Patanjali systematizes those, right? Because prior to Patanjali, we have reference, like in the Maitri Upanishads, to six limbs, the uh, six, uh, six-limbed yoga. Vishnu Purana talks about a five-limbed yoga. So there were variants, right? Because there's no pope that's going to systematize it for all Hindus. Different gurus, different teachers. Different practitioners articulated it differently, maybe sort of had their own different specific nuances. But typically, yoga did mean something, to, some connection with yamas and niyamas. The yamas are common to you know Jainism, Buddhism, even right-handed tantra. And Nyaya defines it, defines yoga as that system which teaches yamas and niyamas. So that was part that was part of the generic understanding of of yoga, mostly in the ancient texts. It has something to do with, and definitely has something to do with dhyana or fixing the mind. So here we then, we're going to look at that, that type of practice which then Patanjali systematizes. Once he systematizes it, the Yoga Sutras then becomes the canonical text 
for that and that only. Okay, you, if you're interested in the, the, uh, how to still the mind to realize that, when you read Patanjali. If you want to interpret the Upanishads and ask questions about the relationship of Atman and Brahman, you don't, you don't read Patanjali. You go to the Vedanta Sutras in traditional India. If you're interested in logic and critical think and, and, and sort of inferential thinking, you read Nyaya Sutras. So different sutras, if, you, if, you, if you're interested in what your Dharma is in the world, you read the Dharma Sutras, Dharma Shastra. So different um, sutras, uh, and they announce their subject matter in the first verse. Patanjali says, Atta Yoga Nushasanam. That's all he's going to do. He's not going to teach us how to, you know, the relationship of Atman and Brahman. He's going to teach us yoga, Chitta So typically the first verse of each sutra announces its subject matter so everybody knows what the text is about, right? The first verse of Vedanta, Atatta Brahma Jignasu. It's going to be about Brahman, a word that Patanjali doesn't use at all. Okay, so therefore different texts are there for different purposes. So the, that, that type of yoga that Patanjali is teaching and calling Chitta um, its nearest equivalent, I think, we can go to chapter 6, verse 8, or actually, let's, let's jump, let's go to verse 10, because we're, we have some limitations of time. Chapter 6, verse 10. The yogin should con- concentrate constantly, right? Fixing the mind. Yunjita uh, satatam, yunj. Yunjita, yunj is the verbal root of the word yoga. Yoga is a noun, a nominal a form, and it comes from the Sanskrit root yunj. So here we have another verbal form, yunjita. He should be yogaing or yunjita, fixing the mind, satatam, constantly. On the self, atmanam, rahasi stitta, remaining in solitude, rahasi, in a secret, in a quiet place. That's why the yogis went to the forest. You're not going to do it in the middle of the Jersey Turnpike. Uh, well, you probably you could if you're a very uh, if you're if you're you know really advanced yogi, but typically that's going to be distracting. So remaining in solitude, alone, with alone, right? No distractions. You don't want any vrittis. With controlled mind, yata chitta. The term yata uh, is controlled mind. Okay, nashir aparigraha. There we have it, aparigra, free from possession. So we know, those of you that know, th- those of us that know the Yoga Sutras will recognize aparigraha as one of the uh, niyamas, yamas. Uh, aparigraha. Bodhigraha means to grasp or to bodhigraha, to graha, to grasp, pari back, to bring, to, to sort of covet, good, if, to use a good old um, Old Testament term, to covet uh, is, is, uh, is parigraha. So aparigraha is not to do that. So verse 10, 11, establishing a firm seat, shucho deshe pratishtapya sthiram asanam atmanaha. Those of you familiar with Patanjali will know that the definition of asana in Patanjali is sthiram sukham asanam. We have two of those three words here in verse 11. Sthiram asanam, he doesn't say sukham, but it's implied. Okay, and it means a seat. Asana is a seat. You sit down. An asana is a seat. This is an asana I'm sitting on. So in a clean place, steram sukham, sukham, uh, steram asanam, atmanaha, not too high, not too low, um, covered with a cloth, an antelope skin, and kusha grass. Kusha grass is, is the sacred seat of the old Vedic ritualists. So, so there's some continuity. You know, with the, with in that sense, at least in the seat. Why an antelope skin? You know, I I've read 
I've looked at this in a few commentaries. I need to look at a few more. I never got a particularly good answer to that. Uh, I think there's a, one commentary says, but I think it's a modern commentary that says that the antelope's skin keeps the bugs away. Um, so that's a sort of very modern way of thinking of it, perhaps, I don't know. Um, so, but it, actually, if you look at the, uh, some of the oldest pictures of yogis, I think they don't go back much before the 16th, 17th century, but often the old pictures, you'll see them sitting on an antelope skin. So and not, um, you, need, you need to do a bit more research and, and see uh, if any commentary uh, explains that. Um, where does it come from? How, how does the yogi get it? He, obviously, the yogi's not going to kill an antelope, so it must be a dead antelope. But, I mean, he's not, is he going to skin it? I mean, because these are questions that, 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 we, that one might ask, but um, the commentators don't seem to ask those questions. But I need to rummage about a bit more. Um, but there it is, verse 11, an antelope skin. Okay. Having directed his mind to a single object, right? Patanjali calls that the alambana. With his thought and the activity of the senses controlled, right, pratyahara, uh, seating himself on the seat, the yogi should practice yoga for the purpose of self-purification, right? Atma shuddhaye, atma shuddhaye. And this is a, a, a term that Patanjali uses, actually, shuddha, that the atma is, is well, he says shuchi, but somewhere he's, he, he calls it shuddha. I'll have to find the verse the mind. So by practicing pranayama and, you know, the mantra and meditation, then the mind becomes uh, sattvic. And the mind needs to be completely and utterly sattvic in order to be still. Because avritti is rajas. When there's rajas, there will be thought. So thinking is a product of sort of a, a subtle type of mental rajas. So for, for the mind to be completely and utterly in a state of niroda, that's synonymous with saying it has to be 100% sattvic. And so these, the practices then are sattvicizing the mind. Verse 13. Holding the body, head and neck erect. Motionless and steady. Gazing at the tip of his own nose. And in chapter 5, it, it, the tip could be here, but in chapter 5 it says this is the tip between the eyebrows. Um, so you, somehow you concentrate on this point here. Um, and I think... At least one commentator says the reason for that is if your eyes are open, it's easy to get distracted. If your eyes are closed, then, of course, closing the eyes, uh, the, the tamasic samskaras associate that with sleep, so the tamas is going to rise in the mind when the eyes are closed. And so, therefore, you don't want to be distracted or, or trigger sleep impulses, and therefore you keep the eyes open but unfocused. So that would be the tip of the nose, not looking in any direction, Verse 14, with quieted mind, banishing fear, establishing the Brahmi, uh, in the Brahmacharin vow of celibacy. Brahmachara, uh, excuse me, Brahmachara vrate stitaha, the vrat of Brahmacharya. So as we know, that's the, uh, one of the yamas in Patanjali is Brahmacharya. So here it is, establishing Brahmacharya. Um, Controlling the mind with thoughts fixed on me. So here we have a theistic element. Krishna's saying this. Fixing the thoughts on, on Ishvara. Um, Krishna. Patanjali's going to allow this too. He's going to say you can fix the mind on Ishvara. Ishvara pranidana dva. How do you do that? Tasyavachaka pranabha tajapa tadartha bhavanam. That, you, that Ishvara manifests the vachaka of Ishvara. That Ishvara manifests in the form of 
pranava, om. Tad japa, and you do the japa of om. So this is the most common form, at least in Hinduism, and, and perhaps early, a lot of early Buddhism, and, and, and um, other traditions, is fixing the mind on uh, a, a sort of sonic incarnation, a, the divinity manifest in the form of sound, uh, the alambana, right? Because if you chitta vritti naroda, our mind has to be fixed on something. And um, that thing is your, the alambana, Patanjali. He says, yata abhimata, you, you fix it on anything you want, but clearly he's prioritizing Ishwar because he spends five or six verses, beginning of the list of alambanas. Ishwar is there in the beginning and he has five or six verses, whereas other alambanas, uh, alambana being the support of the mind, have only one. So here Krishna is saying the same thing, fix the mind on, on, on him, but it has to be fixed. Um, and again, the best way of fixing the mind on on, on Krishna if, uh, or any form of Ishvara is the mantra, the, the, the mantra of, of that form of Ishvara. Verse 15. Thus continually disciplining himself, the yogin whose mind is subdued goes to nirvana, to supreme peace, to union with me. So two things here. Nirvana, of course, this term is not necessarily a Buddhist term. It's a term that's shared by all of the schools. Later on, it becomes associated with Buddhism, and then the, the Hindu traditions stop using it and, and tend to use terms like moksha and mukti. But in, in, these early, in these early days, it was a shared term. A lot of this vocabulary is shared. There's not the same kind of sectarian uh, specifics that emerges later. So that's one thing. And, the, and what does it mean to union with me? Well, that's a question then that you have massive differences on the Vedanta traditions. In Advaita Vedanta, that means the Atman merges into Brahman, it loses its individuality. But in the Vaishnava Vedanta traditions, um, it, the Atman retains its individuality, and union is a union of devotion and bhakti and love and relationship between two individuals, who in the one sense are one, because it, Krishna says, this is all my prakriti, higher and lower, and the Atman is also my property. So there's a, a difference there, but there's a, also there's a oneness and a difference. And, the dif and, and so different Vedanta schools call that oneness and difference by different names. The Krishnamacharya tradition, uh, the Ramanuja tradition calls it Vishishta Advaita, differentiated non-duality. And then we have terms like Dvaita Advaita, Bheda uh, Bheda, Achintya Bheda Bheda, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so the, this is an issue that Vedanta then, the Vedanta schools differ. What does this union with me mean? It's understood very, very, very differently. And we don't have time to go into that. Perhaps another, um, another um, discussion. We can look at some of those ways that the basically we're talking about what's the relationship between Atman and Brahman and what's the relationship between Brahman and Ishvara. Are they one and the same thing and so forth? That discussion we'll have to save for another day. So going back to our uh, Chittavriti Narodaha practice, verse 16, yoga is not eating too much, nor is it not eating at all. This is the middle path of Buddhism. Again, it becomes the middle path of Buddhism, but it has a shared um, context before it becomes sort of reified into the, you know, into, into a sort of, a form, you know, one of the formulations in Buddhism. But the idea of eating too much, not eating too little, is it was shared amongst many yogis in the, uh, in the forests and in the you know the, the moksha seekers of ancient India before they became reified into sects. So yoga is not eating too much, nor is it not eating at all, and not the habit of sleeping too much, 
and not keeping awake either, right? Because there were radical ascetics, including the Buddha, before he became enlightened. Radical ascetic. You read his story. The Buddha would said, you know, he he, could, he he scratched his stomach and he touched his backbone. That's how little flesh he had from his radical non-eating. And you know, he would scratch his hair, head, and his hair fell out. He would bite something, his teeth fell out because he was so mal malnourished. So that, that was pre-enlightenment Buddha, and then, then that's when he comes to the middle path. So that type of radical asceticism was was standard. In fact, the Buddha, had, his early associates were all they had names like Ramputra, Ramputta. They were. There wasn't a sense of Buddhist Hindu. They were moksha seekers in the forest. They, they didn't have these labels that we now apply. They would have been associated with charismatic teachers, no doubt. And there would have been groups of them. It wasn't sort of... So anyway, uh, so some of them were radical um, performers of radical tapas, what Patanjali calls tapas, austerity. But Gita's not promoting that, even in its jhana yoga section. Forget about the karma yoga section, but even in its representation of this forest yoga, it's not recommending uh, radical aestheticism, at least not in verse 16. In fact, they, elsewhere it says that they're, they're demons who actually torment their body. They're asuras. There it's talking about uh, those who do tapas to get siddhi, mystic power, which Patanjali refers to in the fourth chapter, verse 1, that mystic powers can be attained by tapas. In fact, the great demons of Indian law, folklore, right, Ravana, and Hiranyakasipo, the great demons, how do they get their powers? How do they? How do Ravana get so powerful? Even the, the, the celestials couldn't mess with him. Tapas, they they were doing something that looked like yoga, uh, and mind control and intense tapas. But their intentions, they had no interest in, in the Atman at all. And just by the way, uh, I think that's why Patanjali talks about the cities, in the third chapter. I always, you know, when I wrote the book, I. Yeah, this didn't come to me. It came to me afterwards, after it had been published. Otherwise, I'd have run in and added it. But why does Patanjali spend a third of, of the book or a quarter of the book talking about cities? And he says, but they're of no real interest to yogis. Well, why bother mentioning them? Well, uh, I, I think perhaps one reason uh, is because there were lots of people in the forest who did, were doing something that looked like yoga, sitting and stilling their breath and intensely focusing their mind, but they had no interest in Atman at all. They were interested in powers. Uh, so anyway, Krishna is not advocating that. Verse 17, certainly not here. For him, him who is moderate in food and, and diversion, uh, whose actions are disciplined, who is moderate in sleep and waking, yoga destroys all sorrow. Verse 18, when he's absorbed in the self alone, with controlled mind, free from longing, free from desires, um, sarvakama, then he said to be a yogi, yukta iti uchite. Verse 19, we have this nice metaphor of the lamp in a windless place. It doesn't flip, flicker the flame. That's the mind of the yogi. And then verse 20, how do you see the self? It's a beautiful verse. When the mind comes to rest, restrained by the practice of yoga, when beholding the self by the self, he is content in the self. How can how does this how does the self see itself? How do how does one have a realization of the self? The mind can't realize it, right? Right from the Upanishads, we, it, we are clear. You know, mind doesn't reach it, words don't describe it. it you know, the intellect can't grasp it. So how is it to be known then? Right, all our com the instruments of knowledge that we use to know the world, none of that, none of those are any good in this type of yoga. 
They have to, in fact, they have to all be closed down, basically tossed away. So then how is the self to be known if, it, if our conventional uh, instruments of knowledge and attaining knowledge and perception, if they, if they are of no avail? Well, atmana, atmane, atmana, the self is, is to be known in itself, through itself, by itself. And that's Patanjali's Trashtu, Swarupa Vastana. It, it abides in its, own, in its own nature. It cannot be known by the mind. The mind can know of it, can have a concept of it, can infer its existence through logic. The Nyaya, the Nyaya school will, will you know, suggest there must be an Atman using logic, but it can't be experienced um, other than in itself, through itself, by itself. So that's verse 20. Um, Pasyan Atmani Tushite Atmana Atmanam Through the self in itself. So then we are, we'll skip around a bit. Um, having attained this, uh, verse 22, no greater gain can he imagine. Established in this, he is not moved even by profound sorrow. Um, so then, in, in fact, verse 21 we skipped over talks of the infinite bliss and happiness. First of the sattvic mind, and then of the Atman itself. There's two types of happiness. There's the mind when it's completely and utterly in a state of sattva, and the nature of sattva, Gita's going to say later on, is happiness. So that's the prakritic happiness, but the ultimate happiness is within the Atman itself, which Vedanta would say the nature of the Atman, even though we can't describe it, as we said before, typically there's lots of negatives, it's not this, not this, but if you do want to say something, then sat, it is, you can say that much, chit, and it's conscious, and then the Vedantins throw in, well, it's ananda, it's blissful, and it's a different, it's different from any other kind of bliss. Um, so there are two types of bliss, the sattvic mind, a type of um, happiness, and the bliss of the Atman itself. Um, anyway, so here we have verse 23, and the third definition of yoga, yet another one. Let this dissolution of union with pain be known as yoga. Um, Tadvidyad, Tadvidyad, Dukkha San Yoga, Viyogam Yoga, Yoga Sam Sam Jnitam, Sam Jnitam. Let that be known as yoga, the separation from pain. So that's kind of like the real base, level one definition of yoga. Is it frees you from pain that much at least? But it's important to say that because without a, without an awareness of pain of dukkha. Why, one, why, why would one take up the, the yoga path, path in the first place? That's why the Buddha has the Sarvam Dukkham as the first truth. The path is the fourth truth. Before you want to take a path, you, you have to want to go somewhere and you have to want to leave where, you, where one presently is. Well, the path means I don't want to be here, I want to be somewhere else. So therefore, as long as if we're happy in the world, things are hunky-dory, then why take an arduous path of yoga? So therefore, the first step of the yogic journey is a sense of that there that one dukkham, that one is unfulfilled or somehow frustrated. So then Krishna then given that he says, so yoga is that which takes you beyond suffering. In verse twenty three he defines yoga as that which takes us let that be known as yoga, that that practice which takes us away from suffering. So um so then verse twenty four we have um uh, abandoning all those desires whose origins lie in intention, right? Desires are desire nothing other than memories of past sense experiences, and if they're pleasant, they become desires. 
so and then them uh, and then they arise in the mind and then one makes an intention of fulfilling them and so krishna says uh, give them all up they lie the intention is let me find happiness with my body mind how do i do that well i'll go in my memory i'll pull out some scars of things that worked for me in the past that felt good in the past and that's what a desire is and krishna says in 24 give that up completely every one of them and control the senses okay we're going to have to speed up a bit um so verse 25 little by little he should come to rest with the intellect firmly held right buddhya dritta grihitaya so that's dhyana right that's dharana is to hold hold on potentially is going to say ekadeshe uh, fix the mind holding it on one place Tanata, uh, drawing it out, right? It's Patanjali language. Um, he should not think of anything. Verse 26. I love this verse. Yata, uh, okay. Let me read the Sanskrit. Yato yato nischarati manas chanchalam asthiram tatastato niyam yetat atmanyeva pasham nayet. Wherever the mind wanders, bring it back. Wanders, bring it back. From wherever, wherever, literally, wherever, wherever it goes, the mind, chanchalam astiram, because it's astiram, it's not fixed, like astiram, we know stiram, right, asana, stiram, sukham, but the mind is astiram, it's not fixed, and it's chanchalam, it's always flickering. So, yato yato nischarati, wherever it goes, tatastato niyam yata, from that place, bring it back, atman, atmanyeva vasham nayat, one should bring it back under the control of the, of the self. That's meditation. Jnana is nothing other than that. Jnana is nothing other than the effort. Mind goes off, bring it back, goes off, bring it back. Nothing mystical about it, nothing magical about it. It's hard work, it's a practice, um, and that's what it is. And Krishna doesn't say if the mind wanders, he says when it wanders. Anybody that practices meditation will know very well. The mind wanders um, instantly. So the yogi, verse 27, whose mind is peaceful, passions are calmed, free of evil, uh, has become one with Brahman. Again, what does that mean, one with Brahman? Understood very differently in, in the theistic, monotheistic traditions. Oneness is a oneness of two individuals, the oneness of love and relationship. In Advaita Vedanta, it's a literal, actual oneness, an annihilation of the individual, individualism. So attains the highest bliss. And again, 28, again, that happiness beyond end, right? Sukham atyantam. Um, the prob problem with all the happiness, the body-mind, avidya happiness, is they have a beginning and an end. Patanjali says parinama, they're always changing. So this bliss is atyanta, <laughs> is um, like my sneeze, has a beginning and an end. So pleasures in the prakritic realm are of that nature. And... And therefore the yogi is not interested. The yogi is like anybody else, seeking happiness, like any other embodied being, but has determined that, that, that the happinesses of property are temporal. And there's always a price tag, there's always a sort of hidden price tag. Verse 28 and 27, however, tell us that this bliss of the Atman is atyanta, has, is eternal. It's inherent in the Atman itself. So... Um, then verse 29, when one attains the, this vision of the self, one also sees the self in all other beings, and therefore sees, sees everybody equally. Previous verse, the beautiful verse of where, where Krishna says, you know, that he sees a Brahmin, you know, a, a dog and a dog eater as the same, you know, highest in the social hierarchy and the lowest. 
He sees them all as, as Atman. It's a beautiful vision of the of the accomplished yogi, the realized yogi. Um, okay. So then he sort of so, uh, okay. So then Arjuna says, well, you know, this yoga that you've defined, and this is verse um, thirty-three, as samatvam, right? Evenness of mind. Arjuna says, I, I, I don't see how it's possible. He doesn't reject it. He just says, I, it, it doesn't seem attainable because the mind is chanchala. It's the same word. It's flickering. So, um, and, he's, and he goes on in 34, it's uh, unstable, it's turbulent, it's powerful, it's more difficult to control than the wind. And um, this, is a, this is a nice verse, 35, if you want to connect it to Patanjali, where Krishna says, yes, it's difficult, but it can be done by vairagya abhyasa. And that's the definition of nirodha in Patanjali. What is nirodha? Abhyasa vairagya abhyamtan nirodha. So the same two words, abhyasa vairagya, we find here in 635. Arjuna's question is, it's too hard. How am I going to do it? It's, you know, it's like the wind. How do you control the wind? And Krishna here says, it's hard, but it can be done. And how do you do it? Vairagya. You cultivate detachment from the world. How do you do that? You, you, you see that actually all endeavors end up somehow frustrating in some sort of way, or at least unfulfilling. So that's Vairagya, to cultivate Viraga, Virajas. Viraga, Raga is a desire, right? Vairagya is a state of Vai without Raga. And Abhyasa, you practice. How do you practice? Well, the previous verse, Yato Yato Nischarati Manas Chanchalam Astiram Tatastato Niyam Yetat Atmanyeva Vasham Nayat. Wherever it goes, bring it back. That's the Abhyasa. It's nothing other than that. Um, it's nothing esoteric. It's just a. a, a um, it's just a, a abhyasa, it's a practice, it's a daily practice, and over the years one uh, one starts to get better at it. So, we're almost then um, at the end of our time, so um, then Arjuna asks this great question, well, what happens if I, and this is 635, um, then uh, uh, 637, 38, Arjuna says, well, what if I start and I don't finish? Then aren't I a loser? Right? I start the path of yoga, right? I do some tapas, I do some vairagya, so I sort of start to give up my attachment to the things of the world, but I didn't get this great bliss of Brahman that everyone's talking about, so I don't get one or the other, like a, like a cloud that gets broken up. It's not a little bit of cloud wanders off in the big patch of cloud. What happens to it? It's not cloud anymore. It's just evaporates into nothingness. It's not sky. What is it? So if I take up the path of yoga and I don't finish, well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't get to even try to enjoy this world like the Vedic ritualists are trying to do, but I didn't get this bliss of Brahman like the yogis keep talking about. So I'm a loser then. I got nothing. So that's the question. It's a great question. And the, and, and the subtext of the question, and this is my, I'm inferring this, is kind of like, since I don't think I can finish, in this life, why bother trying? Why start a practice that I can't finish, right? And this might be a question that some of us sometimes ask, our minds ask. And then you get these beautiful verses where Krishna says, you don't worry, you, if you fall from the path, it's probably, you know, weaknesses or whatever, you know, you, you'll get to go to a celestial realm to burn up some of your whatever desires are there. And then, if, and then you come back down and you take birth, and these are verses, um, you know, you stay there for a long time, verse 41, in these sort of the realms of the meritorious, the, the svargas, 
And then you come back and you take birth in a very good family, either a very good family that's pious and, well, the word he uses is Srimatam, I think. Yeah, Srimatam and Shuchinam. It's Shuchi. It's a pure family, sattvic, pious, favorably disposed to spirituality. That would be Shuchi. And Srimatam, with resources, so there's no hustle, you know, there's no sort of, you don't have to hustle for just to, you know, make ends meet. So either one takes birth in a, in a good, pious spiritually favorable family or verse 42 you take you come back and take birth in a family of yogis and he says that that's very rare uh, obviously if you take birth in a family of yogis then the little baby from the, all the samskaras going into that baby's mind from the minute of from the moment even in the conception and even in the womb and certainly after birth is going to be yogically flavored you know, the conversations in the household, the environment in the household, the activities of the mother and father. If they're yogis, they're going to be meditating, they're going to be practicing uh, tapas and svadhyaya, they're going to be studying, the, the, the child will be growing up. All the samskaras going into the child's mind will be uh, of that sort. So that's a very considered to be, at least in this verse, Krishna says that is, durlabha taram. That's very rare, that's more rare, tara more rare than the, than the previous than just taking birth in a good family so we're almost at the end here and um, and then verse 43 then Krishna says and then he picks up the same knowledge he had from the past life in other words the question is what if I start don't finish and I fall you know and say I got halfway along the path fell Krishna says okay then you go to the celestial realm come down take birth a good birth but then you pick up the practice from where you left off that means that at an early age, that child is going to be attracted to the practices of yoga and able to concentrate the mind, starting at the same place that the, that, that person left off. So nothing is lost. Unlike other things, we lose from one life to the next. We have some skill in this life, we die. We don't necessarily have that skill in the next life, right? If I'm a, a violinist, I don't get born, except in rare cases, maybe like Beethoven, where, you know, Something may activate from a past life, a child prodigy, but in most cases, one doesn't reactivate skills from a past life. There might be some inclination, but yoga, you start exactly where you left off, according to verse 44 and 43 of the sixth chapter. And Krishna says, um, and then one is almost forced along the practice, meaning the samskaras will activate from the past life and they will just rush into the mind and just that that person will just, even without really thinking about it, or maybe even not even studying, or really knowing what he or she's doing, is automatically find themselves engaged in the practices. That would be well, one way of reading verse 44. So almost against his will is the language. Um, the Sanskrit is, uh, apurva abhyasena, from the purva abhyasa, right? Abhyasa, purva, the previous practice, tena, uh, kriyatehi, Avasho, avasho, vasha is to control. Avasho means almost sort of spontaneously. That's a nice way of, of saying avasha, not, not against his will, because that sounds impositional, but avasha is spontaneous um, interest and attraction and inclination and ability to do yoga. Ability meaning whatever ability had been developed in a past life, that same ability just reactivates. So then I'd like to finish this discussion then with again i want to bring it back to bhakti because i don't want us to get lost uh, you know and um again i want to wrap this up but let, let's read two more verses verse 46 oh well actually first 45 and krishna says and then through many births verse 45 
one event, one slowly works, each birth becoming more, the mind becomes purer and purer by the practices, and eventually, and he, he says actually many births, so the Sanskrit, aneka janma, aneka, not eka, not one, aneka, more than one, so aneka, so it's not necessarily going to happen in one, in one birth, uh, aneka janma, through many births, one um, eventually becomes samsiddha, Siddha becomes perfected. So then, um, last two verses of the chapter, 46 and 47, let's read the Sanskrit. Um, verse 46. Tapasvi bhyo dhiko yogi, jnani bhyo pi mato dhikaha, karmi bhyascha dhiko yogi, tasmat yogi bhavarjuna. That the yogi is tapasvi bhyo, it's better than the person who's doing tapas. Right? And I mentioned there are plenty of people doing tapas who were doing tapas for, they wanted siddhi, or they wanted some other goal. But so the yogi is better than just someone doing tapas. The yogi may be doing tapas, but he's doing tapas to realize the Atman. So that's better than just doing tapas. That's the first line. Jnani bhyo pimato dikaha. And it's better than just someone who's just studying the jnani, who knows. And maybe the Vedantins who, or, or no, that, that, that's not quite right. But, you know, someone who's just cultivating knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? For learning or for prestige or, you know. So yogi's better than, than just someone cultivating knowledge because the yogi's trying to realize that knowledge. So line two says the yogi's better than the jnani and certainly better than the karmi. The karmis are the Vedic ritualists who are doing stuff that looks religious, that's authorized by sacred texts, but it's actually just perpetuating ignorance because it's based on getting stuff for the body-mind which means it's based on an identity of the uh, you know, thinking I am body-mind and therefore my body-mind needs this, that and the other and doing all these rituals to get this, that and the other. So the yogi is better than the, than the Vedic ritualist which here the, the, the karma is probably referring to the Vedic ritualist. Tasmad yogi bhavarjuna, therefore be a yogi arjuna and the last verse then uh, is the one that I want to leave you with. Uh, in terms of this section, yoginam apisarvesham, and out of all the yogis, right, who are better than the, tap, the tapas people and the karmis and the jnanis, and out of all the yogis, madgatayan antaratmanan, the one who has gone to me with his mind, has absorbed his mind in me, uh, whose mind is absorbed in me, madgata antara, antara atmanan, atmana here means the mind, the mind is antara, on, internally is contemplating me, Shradhavan bhajate yomam, bhajate, who does bhakti, Bhaj, uh, the word bhakti comes from the root bhaj. So bhajate is the verbal form of bhakti, the one who does bhakti to me, Shradhavan with faith. Same yukta tama mata, he is the best of the yuktas, he is the best of the yogis. So there's a number of uh, hierarchical or uh, comparative statements in the Gita, in all of them bhakti is the highest. The performer of bhakti, either the practice of bhakti is the higher, highest, beginning of chapter 12, you can check that. This verse, the practitioner of bhakti is the highest of all yogis. So the Gita is very clear that bhakti is, the path of action is better than the path of forest yoga. That's, that's something that he, that he dispenses with in the beginning of the text, establishes that. But then we will find, uh, if we had more time to read the rest of the text, but um, of those active in the world, the bhakti is the highest. Which uh, um, so, and I would like to just then finish with two bhakti verses. Um, 
so that we get a sense of what is this bhakti then. Now we know what meditation yoga is, fixing the mind, exactly what Patanjali says it is. We know what karma yoga is, which it, the Gita is introducing for the first time, or at least in its own frame of reference, it's, it's re-establishing a lost tradition, but to all intents and purposes it's, re- it's something new at the time. That's karma yoga. What is this bhakti? Well, the Gita mostly establishes bhakti as the highest, speaks of the bhakti yoga as the highest, yogi as the highest. It doesn't tell us too much about how to do bhakti. And the text to go to for that is, of course, the Bhagavata Purana in the Krishna tradition. Um, of course, there are other bhakti traditions. In the Shiva tradition, you have the Shiva Purana, and the Devi tradition, you have the Devi Mahatmya. But we are looking at the Gita now, and that's Krishna is saying that he is he is that Ishvara and speaking about bhakti to himself. So the text, if one's interested in looking at the um, at what what are the what's the nitty gritty of bhakti? You know, who are the role models? What are the practices? What are the attitudes? Then the text to read for that is the Bhagavata, Prama, uh, Bhagavata Purana, which I think now is becoming more and more readily available. It's being translated more and more, and so forth. So, but the Gita itself doesn't say too much, but it does say a couple of things, and I'd like to leave you with those verses, if I may, and um, that would be in the ninth chapter. And um, and I think this would be a good place to part company. And um, we'll go to 920-something. So a quick look. Here we are. 914 and 15. And these will finish our discussion here. What is this bhakti? You know, and here, 914. Satatam kirtayanto mam. Always doing kirtan. This is one way of keeping God, Krishna or Ishvara in the mind. Is kirtan. You're having the mantra, constantly singing it out loud and congregationally. That's Kirtan tends to be congregational. Put it in the mind. Satatam, all the time. Still following the, the vows, the yamas and niyamas. It's not that bhakti is a shortcut. It's not kind of some kind of born-again Krishnaism. It's still a yogic practice. Yamas, niyamas, all of that applies. So that's line two. Yatantascha, striving, struggling. Drithavrataha, with fixed vows. Namasyantas, chamam bhaktya. Always doing honor, namas, to me with bhakti. Always honoring uh, and Often this is associated with pujas and deity worship. Nitya yukta upasate, always yukta, always in a state of yoga, like the classical yogis, always still mind control, still fixing the mind, but bhakti means fixing the mind on Ishvara, on Krishna, rather than on the Atman, or rather than on Dharma for Dharma's sake. Okay, so karma yoga is fixing the mind on Dharma for Dharma's sake, free of attachment, but that's the practice, acting without, and always monitoring that one's not becoming attached. Jnana Yoga is keeping the Atman, samskara, dominant in the mind. Right? I am Atman, I am Atman, and repeating the great Upanishadic, the Mahavakyas, right? Tattvamasi, you are that. Aham Brahmasmi, I am, I am Brahman. That's the practice in Jnana, keeping the Jnana samskaras in the mind, right? Patanjali practices Nirodha, right? So the active, the prominent samskara is the Nirodha samskara, Nirodha, stilling everything else. But Bhakti, the much more of an active practice, but the the samskaras are active as a vrittis, but they're all focused on Krishna. So Krishna became can be kept in the mind through the stories of the incarnations, 
through kirtan, through japa, their mantra, repeating the mantra in the mind, these are very, and through puja, sort of um, worshipping of the deity. If we had more time, we could talk about what a deity is. Um, but essentially, it's, trans, it, it, it's similar to the notion of transubstantiation in Catholicism, where the host becomes, uh, is not, no longer bread and water, but his body and blood of Christ. So the deities becomes, it pervaded the divine presence. So finally, then, so that's bhakti. It's the satatam kirtayam tomo. And verse 15, um, no, verse, uh, well, I can't find it, but I, I remember the Sanskrit. Yad karoshi, yad ishnashi, yad jahoshi, dadasi yad, yad tapasyasi kaunteya, tat kurusva madarpanam. Bhakti. Whatever you do, whatever you eat, whatever you offer, whatever tapas you perform, you do that madarpanam as an offering to to Bhagavan. This is how it differs from karma yoga. Karma yoga, you do those things just just purely duty for duty's sake, almost in a Confucian type of um, um, mode. Whereas in bhakti, one's active in the world, right? Again, this the text is promoting action in the world, whether it's the karma yoga type, but it's definitely saying the most ultimate, highest form of action is bhakti, but it's still promoting, in either case, it's promoting action. The difference between bhakti yoga and karma yoga is that in bhakti, everything is done as an offering. And, okay, so so that's it. Um, um, basically, if we want to think of four practices, I'll just repeat this one more time. Um, the principal samskaras of the mind in jnana yoga is I am Atman, I am Atman, I'm not body-mind. That's the principal mental cultivation, that's the abhyasa, that's the practice. And it tends to focus a lot on, in the Vedanta tradition on study of the Upanishads and the great sayings and internalizing them and repeating them and contemplating them. That's jnana yoga, that's the practice, keeping the atma samskara foremost. Foremost samskara of karma yoga is that plus what is my duty, what is my duty, what is my duty in every context, what was duty call, right? Not what do I want, not what results am I going to get, Free, you know, always monitoring that desire doesn't creep in. And that's the practice. And am I doing this simply because of duty or is my ego intruding? That's the practice, duty for duty's sake. So it's a combination of the jnana samskaras we just discussed. And, but in addition to that, because it's, it's taking those into the world, it's called buddhi yukta, also called buddhi yoga, taking those into the world. And the, the main concern is, am I doing duty for duty's sake? Okay, that's the main samskara. Patanjali yoga, which we discussed, chapter 6 here, what's the main samskara? Niroda. The, the, the one samskara that stills everything else until it has nothing left to do, and then it too dissolves, as Patanjali puts it. Then and then the seer can, then there's nothing to be distract the seer anymore, and therefore the seer can swarupe vastanam abide in its own nature. So the dominant samskara in the Patanjalian, which the Gita calls jnana yoga practice, is niroda samskara. Okay, so three different samskaras in three different practices, and finally bhakti. What is the dominant samskara? Is Krishna. And how do we keep Krishna in the mind? Through thinking of the stories of Krishna's leelas and, and pastimes, through re repeating the mantras of Krishna, through kirtan, through pujas, and in these sorts of bhakti-specific ways. And of course, those who worship other forms of Ishvara, the same would apply for Shiva and the goddess. So I uh, hope I didn't talk too fast, but I was trying to cram a lot in, and. Um,
Thank you for your attention.